I do not believe that Nikki Haley or, or Mike Pence or frankly, Tim Scott, I do not think those people will raise serious, serious money because I think there's a lot of 2016 hangover. And I think DeSantis, you don't have to be a savant to sort of see him as really the only credible challenger to Donald Trump. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Friday, May 5th. Today, I'm joined by Teddy Schleifer to talk about which major donors are lining up to cut checks for Joe Biden's 2024 re-election campaign, and which Republican money men are jumping on Team Ron DeSantis as the Florida governor prepares a presidential bid of his own. Teddy has the latest on the world of big money politics. And later, Tina Wynn stops by to discuss whether Kevin McCarthy's Republican caucus will fall into line on the debt ceiling fight. We'll discuss all that and more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Happy Friday, everybody. I talked yesterday to Tara Palmieri about the 2024 Republican primary. Today, I'm joined by Teddy Schleifer, who's going to pull back the curtain on some of the very important big donors who are lining up behind possibly Ron DeSantis, some other Republican candidates, if Donald Trump has any big donors. And then on the Dem side, Joe Biden, who announced his re-election campaign just about a week ago, as we know. But first, Teddy, you must be feeling good about your 76ers. Sure. You know, we're recording this game one and in beadless 76ers have a one to know against a better Celtics team. So I'm feeling good. More personalities on the Philly team, a bunch of zeros on the Celtics team. As far as I'm concerned, I'm not interested in watching them ever. Uh, and I was glad they lost last year. I'm not a Celtics hater, but good God, the most boring team in the NBA, in my humble opinion. The, the West series semifinal series are very fun. So I feel like those are going to take yes. a lot of yes. the media attention. But yes. Uh, I saw a note on this, uh, in fact, Puck audience will actually care about this, uh, even though it's NBA related. The Game 7 for the Golden State Warriors-Sacramento Kings game was the highest rated NBA playoff game in 24 years. Wow. The Kings! Yeah. Sacto. Unfortunately, they did not light the beam, but there's always next year for that young team. Uh, Teddy, money. So I want to ask you about Biden first, before he was president at least, was never known as a super able fundraiser, <laughs> at least from my time covering him back in 2008 when he ran. I remember that much. And then he wasn't raising a ton of money back in the primaries in 2019 and 2020 until he became the nominee. So I feel like if you're a big donor at this point, raising money for an incumbent president, there's some vanity at play here. You want to be one of the guys in the room. You want to show off to your rich friends that you're having a fundraiser at your house or whatever. You got a picture shaking hands with the president. Who are those people this time for Biden? So um, it is going to be a, a subset of the people that did it last time. And let's start with that. The Democratic donor universe is smaller than it was in 2020. There are reasons that are logistical having to do with, for instance, the fact that several of Biden's top bundlers are now ambassadors, um, which mm. makes them unable to, to do a round two. Mm. There, there are reasons that I guess are more... Uh, spiritual or political um and by and by that i mean there are people who feel that their spirits have taken them away from being heavily interested in politics interesting like lots of normies you know um i think there are people who uh want to get involved with eating trump in 2020 you know do they really care if the marginal tax rate is 36 percent or 39 percent? and politics doesn't feel 
as existential to them. Maybe wrong, maybe it should, but it, it doesn't. And, and there are people who, you know, feel that Biden specifically is not their their favorite candidate for all the talk that we in the media do about Biden's age. Donors talk about Biden's age, too, even though, ironically, you know, obviously lots of major donors are, are pushing 80 themselves. Doesn't stop them from from shit talking um, the 80 year old at the top of the ticket. So it's going to be smaller, smaller group of people. This past weekend was sort of the kickoff event for the Biden bundling community. Uh, they're trying to raise including outside money, about $2 billion for Biden efforts. And for all the, you know, doom and gloom I just projected, I think they'll do it. I mean, he's an incumbent president. There are, there are a lot of Democrats who I think, especially if Donald Trump is a Republican nominee, will, you know, maybe find that their spirits lead them back to uh, to, to their checkbooks. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, the, the Democratic appetite for taking him out is uh, pretty strong. And so it's really going to be a logistical challenge more than anything, right? It's going to be a question about can Biden get in front of enough donors? Can they pull off enough events? Like it's it's not primarily a um, a question of like excitement. It's a question of just blocking tackling of, of presidential fundraising. And that's why, you know, we here at Puck have been obsessed with like the parlor game of who's going to be national finance chair or finance director, these sort of inside game elements of of presidential politics. But I think the Biden fundraising operation is going to be kind of uninspiring and boring, and but it needs to be effective. And that's why the personnel really matter here. If there's one person to watch on, in the Democratic donor world this cycle, who is it going to be? So I would say it's, it's Jeffrey Katzenberg. Jeffrey is, of course, had a life long before Quibi, you know, the, the Hollywood king of politics, I would say. Um, you know, mm-hmm. he's been very involved in, in, you know, the LA mayor election, Peter, that you were following, but also, you know, he was involved with Priorities USA, uh, the Democratic Super PAC back in the day. He, you know, is really like a veteran of this stuff. You know, he looks good for, you know, I think he's pushing 70 or, and he, he, and he, he is the um, presidential campaign co-chair, one of like five or six, you know, it's mostly governors and senators and like, you know, congressmen, people who are like Biden allies, but it's pretty mm-hmm. weird to say like a, like, a, like a donor be a co-chair, which I think speaks to the fact that Katzenberg is kind of the de facto leader of the bundling operation. Like uh, I reported, you know, some scenes from the Biden bundling summit this past weekend. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when Biden was working the rope line or the proverbial rope line, you know, doing handshakes and gripping grins next to him or across from him was Katzenberg doing his own. So it's sort of like the two for you, you, you're in this line, you get to shake hands with Katzenberg. Then you could shake hands with Biden. Um, so I think it really speaks to the elevation uh, of him this cycle and that he's going to be the closest thing, at least for the early part of this campaign, to kind of like a, a chair figure. It's possible they don't even name a chair, sort of mm-hmm. what I've been hearing. And and the Biden, to, to hear the Biden folks' perspective on this, like they almost see the fact that, that Katzenberg is like a co-chair of the entire campaign, not just like a mm-hmm. national finance committee head, as almost like being, you know, uh, akin to becoming a priest. Like this is a this is a higher calling. Yeah than being just like a money guy. Um, they believe Katzenberg will be like a strategist, you know, a top ally. Um, you know, they want to have Katzenberg in front of reporters. They want to have him, you know, working hard on this. You know, Jeffrey Katzenberg has like a full-time donor advisor who kind of a guy's mm. guides his work. Um, it's, it's clear he's going to be spending a lot of time on this. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense given you mentioned you spent money for Karen Bass in the LA mayor's race against Rick Caruso. He, I think, in the primary early on before the runoff funded a super PAC. And I have to imagine had some hand in the messaging there, you know, going after Caruso as a mini Donald Trump, et cetera. So, you know, he 
views himself as someone who is actually politically savvy and isn't just opening up a checkbook. We talked on a previous podcast about how Priorities USA is not really the favored outside group for Biden world. Yeah. That was the outside fundraising vehicle, mainly for Barack Obama in 2012 during his reelect. Where are donors being told to send their money for outside groups? Because that's really important. Yeah. So um, the the group that uh, you're referring to, Peter, from from six months ago when we wrote, broke this story um, is called Future Forward, which is mm. a, a super PAC that was heavily backed by my friends uh, in the Silicon Valley donor community in 2018 and 2020 and is pretty much the main television group this cycle. We had a, a mini, very mini scoop in our edition uh, here at Puck this week about our, our friend Adisu, who is... Um, Mm-hmm. helping run that group this cycle. And there are lots of donors who are, are going to flood into this group. And I think that, you know, it could raise 500 million, you know, 800 million. I don't think that's implausible. Priority mm-hmm. still exists, though. I think the group is, or there's a, a sense that it could be hurt by the loss of Guy Cecil, who is the group's founder and is sort of the face of the franchise uh, for a long time. Um, and there has been a shakeup in the Democratic Super PAC world. Real quick, Teddy, on the Republican side, we've been hearing from Tara a little bit in her reporting that big donors are feeling a little queasy about Ron DeSantis. They want him to speak up on this issue or jump in the race earlier. Look, donors are always grousing to reporters and people in their circles, so none of that is new. But are there actual concerns about DeSantis in the Republican donor world? And and who's planning to write big checks for him this cycle? Sure. So the uh, there are a couple of major donors who are... Um, uh, well, I think you put on your on your starting five on on Team DeSantis. Um, one is <laughs> a named Robert Bigelow, who um, I do not expect people to have heard of, but um, he is kind of a, a zanier space entrepreneur than Elon Musk. He um, <laughs> he made a lot of his money in, in real estate. Eventually, he was in charge of a budget hotels chain, and he has made a lot of his money recently and spent a lot of his time on aerospace, on you know exploring things like. Uh, life after death and but and also more terrestrial concerns like uh, like space travel. And he's put $20 million into the DeSantis Super PAC that has raised wow. 35 total. So like he is at this point the largest DeSantis donor. DeSantis also has, you know, $85 million. It's in his Florida gubernatorial campaign account that is he's expected to at least try to transfer to his federal yeah. super PAC. So DeSantis has about $115 million right now. Just out in his in his bank account at the gate. Another donor who's top of mind is Ken Griffin. Griffin is uh, you know the founder of the Citadel Investment Shop, who basically has moved his operations from Chicago to Miami. So he's in DeSantis's hood now. The Times had a story two weeks ago that, or ten days ago now, that basically sort of suggested DeSantis had had pissed off Griffin by kind of being so conservative. That generally tracks with my intel. You know, I wrote this week that um I talked with people who have talked with Griffin about DeSantis. Um, and and the sense that I get is that Griffin finds DeSantis like a little bit too extreme on some issues. But the same source of mine, you know, made the point, which I think is also valid, that like there's not really many other options. I think the the dirty secret, or maybe not even a secret at this point, you could only look at polling, is that for Republicans who want to beat Trump, including in the, you know, three comma club, there really just aren't many options. Whether or not you like DeSantis or not, he's kind of the the only ticket in town right now. You know, I, I do not believe that 
Nikki Haley or, or Mike Pence or frankly Tim Scott, even if you you know if you exclude Larry Ellison, I do not think those people will raise serious serious money because I think there's a lot of 2016 hangover uh, or concerns mm-hmm. about deja vu where you know you split the field and uh, fund fund too many candidates. And I think DeSantis, if you know, you don't have to be a savant to sort of see him as really the only credible mm-hmm. or credible-ish challenger to Donald Trump. And that's going to kind of create maybe a lot of like remorseful mega checks um, where it's like, well, like, I don't really want DeSantis to be president or he's not my first choice to be president, but he, he's kind of the only shot um, we have. So, so you're, they're sort of this like late stage primary politics early on in the primary where typically, you know, the field winnows. Like I feel like the field's kind of kind of winnow for donor donors even earlier. So I think the Sanders will raise a lot of money from people who see him as their like fourth choice. <laughs> and and that's going to be a dynamic to watch where I think lots of Republicans would love if, if Glenn Youngkin was the nominee or Nikki Haley was the nominee or Tim Scott was the nominee. Or, you know, frankly, if like, you know, Mitt Romney was the nominee, but um, that's not the Republican Party that exists today. And for kind of moderate business minded Republicans like Ken Griffin, DeSantis is kind of their only uh, only great hope. Yeah, that's what I'm hearing, too. I mean, you know, again, these people are not savants, like you said, but uh, the, the 2016 hangover is real. They realize they need to pony up for one person. <laughs> and look, maybe the money flows somewhere else if DeSantis gets in and fizzles. But that's that's sort of what I'm hearing too. So good reporting, my friend. Have a good weekend. Go Sixers. Thank you so much. You bet. When we come back, Tina Wynn is here to talk about the House Republican Caucus. Welcome back to the powers that be. I'm Ben Landy here with GOP political reporter and expert Tina Wynn. Hey, Tina. Hi, Ben. That is me, the expert on all GOP things. (laughs) Well, as the expert, I I wanted to have you on to talk a little bit about the debt ceiling, which is looming large. Obviously, the other day, Janet Yellen said that actually the deadline for hitting the debt ceiling is now June 1st. That's earlier than we thought. I guess apparently because less tax revenue came in than was expected. So basically, we have less than one month which Republicans and Democrats need to get together, pass something out of Congress, get it signed by Joe Biden that allows the debt ceiling to be raised. Unfortunately, of course, Republicans and Democrats are nowhere near an agreement. The House GOP did pass a bill recently that would raise the debt ceiling for about a year or about $1.5 trillion in exchange for a number of cuts, about $130 billion in cuts. Democrats, of course, want a clean hike with zero cuts or changes. And Biden has said that he would veto the House GOP bill as it currently exists. But I want to talk about some of the dynamics within the House GOP conference. Were you surprised that Kevin McCarthy, the House Speaker, was able to get everyone on his side together and, and, and agree? Because he does have a very, very narrow majority. Yeah. I mean, the interesting thing is that I think he realizes that his fate is in the hands of the people we have deemed as the Taliban 20, the people who managed to stop his speakership bid back in January, if anyone remembers that epoch ago. Right. These are the 20 or so members who held up his speakership by some 15 votes or something. They were extracting a lot of concessions along the way in order to gain their support. Oh, yeah, that one, for sure. And uh, it's easy for him to keep their 
caucus together on his side. I think you only saw two people defect. One of them was Matt Gates, and the other one was Andy Biggs. And they just kind of don't like McCarthy to begin with, so I think they wanted some reason to screw him over. But like leading up to the very end, I think the people you saw hold out were more moderates who weren't happy with his proposed um, policies on ethanol. And I think Nancy Mace also had issues with um, funding for women's health, reproductive health. And I think in exchange, he's allowing her to hold a floor vote on, I think, access to abortion. You may want to fact check me on that one. But ultimately, he cut a deal that let him get a package over the finish line. And I don't know, this is the tyranny of low expectations, right? Where... He had such a hard time becoming speaker in the first place that everyone was like, oh my God, can you do it now? And he did with a pretty standard right-wingery bill of all things considered. Look, ever since the Tea Party, which has been around for 12 years at this point, the like Republican Congress, especially the Republican House, is like, we're cutting taxes, we're cutting the budget, everything will be smaller. I want to make the government so small that I could drown it in a bath. Um, that's a Grover Norquist saying. Uh, So this isn't a surprise. It's not a surprise that Kevin managed to get everyone on board by promising smaller government through XYZ cuts. The issue is what will happen if he brings it to Biden and Biden inevitably says no. And he brings it back to this Congress and members of the 20 are like pretty hardcore on this. A couple weeks ago, I did this piece called... um, the Taliban 20s McCarthy to-do list, and I reached out to the people who were instrumental in holding up his speakership. They extracted a lot of concessions from him. A bunch of those had to do with what would appear in this budget, and the think tank that had backed up their efforts, the Center for Renewing America, were like, we don't believe that a default is a real thing. I think that's just a threat the establishment uses in order to get us into line. We're okay going over the cliff, we have a lot of money to pay off our bills and look, you can only afford to lose like five people at this point. And if you have 10 members of the Taliban 20 say, okay, no, we dislike what you're doing here. Then, you know, that's, that's bad for Kevin. Well, it's, it's, it's definitely alarming that any think tank would be advising Republicans that the, the debt ceiling doesn't really matter, that it's the sort of fantasy of establishment Washington. It will be a nightmare for global debt markets uh, and for the U.S. economy if we breach the debt market and are not able to pay our debts. But Tina, I, I take your point that you know this first bill that McCarthy was able to pass with a very narrow majority was probably the easiest for him, given that each new step in these negotiations, presumably he's going to have to give some things up that make members of his caucus less and less happy. But just starting really big picture, what are some of the major cuts that House Republicans have been focused on? Like from the 30,000 foot view, what does a win for them look like? Let's look at the Chip Roy way of looking at things. Uh, It's One of it is that they want to roll back some of the funding that had been allocated for COVID-19 efforts, um, NIH funding, funding for specific social programs, whatever is left from the pot that they put together back when COVID first became a thing, rolling that back. Some entitlement reforms, like you need to prove that you make X amount of money or work X amount of hours in order to qualify for, say, Medicare, rolling back funding for green energy initiatives, And the big one that I think is going to upend Washington and the country is the Biden program to forgive student loan debt. 
Like, that's really popular for him. That's popular for a lot of people. But if you look at Republicans who'd want to hold it up, they're like, no, we're pulling up the ladder. We paid for our college. Why is it that you can't pay for yours? So holding that, that might be, I think, the biggest bargaining chip that they have. It's funny how much of a focus there is on culture war issues instead of big structural fiscal issues. I mean, you know, you had also talked before about cuts to DEI programs and initiatives, which, you know, of course, is a drop in the bucket for a very large federal budget. But Republicans are not asking for any changes to Social Security or Medicare, which are actually the biggest entitlement programs and a huge portion of the federal budget. That's a real political and cultural shift for the GOP post-Trump. I mean, you think about the Republican Party of Paul Ryan, those priorities basically would have been flipped. Right. Like what Trump was able to prove during his administration was that you can get Republicans on your side who will love you, especially if if you if you protect Social Security and Medicare. Trump voters are like blue collar populist. A lot of them were initially Democrat union workers whose jobs got like lost to free trade and China and they rely on Medicare and Social Security. So Threatening to cut that would be cutting off a huge lifeline for Trump supporters and this segment of the Republican Party that the like ideologically purest wing just didn't accept existed. It's funny. This is why you start seeing people, the people who are backing Ron DeSantis right now tend to be more intellectually libertarian, Chip Roy, Thomas Massey. Trump and his allies are literally hitting DeSantis on him wanting to cut Social Security and Medicare. It's a potent program to keep funded. And I think cutting them right now, especially for their older voter base, would be deeply unpopular. Yeah, I mean, that that was the great Trump innovation to basically dump from the GOP platform the pieces that were the least popular in many ways. And, and that was the fiscal conservatism of Paul Ryan and Mitt Romney. But Tina, I, I want to get a sense from you of what you think is going to happen next here. Next week, McCarthy is going to the White House along with Hakeem Jeffries, Chuck Schumer, Mitch McConnell. But basically, everyone understands that this is a deal that Biden needs to make with McCarthy. It's not going to happen through the Senate. Mm-hmm. In the end, like we were saying, both sides are probably going to have to make some concessions. There's going to be some give and take. I'm curious how you see that playing out for McCarthy when he has to bring back some deal to this conference that includes these members who have this very cavalier sort of hair trigger attitude toward the debt ceiling and are willing to hold McCarthy's feet to the fire to make sure that they get everything they want. I mean, again, he can't lose more than five people unless there's going to be some kind of compromise bill that's a large group of Democrats plus a number of Republicans. McCarthy's going to have to really walk a fine line here to get this across. Yeah. And that's the question. Like, A lot of the people in this group of 20 are very new members. You haven't seen them have a voting record. You don't know exactly like what sort of compromises they are willing to make publicly. How many people there will like continue to vote no against McCarthy no matter what, no matter if he gives them the, you know, the MAGA farm. How many people are there going to be who like, you know what, I told my constituents I would never vote for a bill that increased some type of debt. How many people are just going to be like, how dare you even try to compromise with Biden at all? If you have five diehard MAGA purists who cannot accept whatever it is Biden will be able to offer them, then McCarthy is completely screwed. And is this the moment that they decide to 
pull a vote of no confidence on him. I don't know. It's going to be a true test of exactly who is in this caucus. Yeah, I mean, at this point, all we can do is hope for the best. I mean, there, there is not a lot of time left before June 1st. Pressure is already mounting. I, I don't think we've yet to truly see Wall Street responding here. Markets are not yet freaking out, but it feels like only a, a matter of time. And maybe Democrats will be able to pull off some kind of parliamentary gimmick to get around this. I don't think so. We'll see how this plays out, Tina, but um, certainly it does feel like things will likely get worse before they get better. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. It'll be a fun <laughs> couple of weeks. Well, I'm glad you're having fun with it. Uh, Tina, thanks as always for your reporting. Thanks, Ben. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you next week. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13, and produced by Ben Landy, executive editor at Puck. Puck.